The woman, the woman must have gotten up very early, that's early Sunday morning, and been on the way to the tomb before dawn, as soon as light began to creep into the sky. Jesus had died on the Friday afternoon, and he'd been put into the tomb hurriedly, before sunset, before the Sabbath. Because according to Jewish timekeeping, the Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday evening. And on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, they weren't allowed to do anything, anything that even resembled work. It was a day to rest, to read the scriptures, to pray. They couldn't cook meals, they couldn't carry on business, they couldn't even shake out the bedclothes. And they certainly couldn't carry a bundle of linen and jars of ointment through the streets to a tomb, open it, and set about the task of embalming a body. They had to spend the day at home, grieving, unable to fulfill their desire to minister to the dead body of their master. Remember, it was the women who had stayed at the cross. All the guys, except maybe John, had taken off. But these women had stayed. They had seen Jesus die. They had seen his body taken down off the cross. They had seen it laid in the tomb and the stone rolled across the opening. They knew he was dead. And they had brought spices, aromatic oils and perfumes to anoint his body. They knew what they were going to find. They were going to find a body in a tomb, just where it had been left. A dead body, ready, anoint, ready for anointing. But when they got there, the stone was rolled away, and there was no body in the tomb. When I married into Marilyn's family, one of the things I noticed about them was how quiet they were. They would watch... Her, her, her father and her brother would watch a hockey game or a football game in absolute silence. Now, I was a new immigrant, and I didn't even understand the games. I still don't understand American or Canadian football. Um, I couldn't understand the games, but I just found the excitement contagious, you know? So I would get way more excited than they did. Um, I'd make comments, cheer, all that kind of stuff. And Marilyn's dad and brother would just kind of look at me and smile. I'm the same watching movies on television. My family make fun of me because sometimes I get so engrossed in the story that I talk to the TV. Well, I don't talk to the TV, that would be silly. I talk to the people on the TV, um, the characters. Because, you know, as we watch stories unfold in a movie or on television, we often know more of what's going on than any of the characters do. And part of me just wants to shout out, no, don't trust him, he's the enemy. Now that might have something to do with growing up in the UK, which is the land of pantomime. Christmas season in the UK is pantomime season. And uh, famous stories like Aladdin, Jack and the Beanstalk, stuff like that, are acted out on stage for audiences that are made up predominantly of children. And there are certain conventions in pantomime, One of them is that the lead man is always played by a young woman. Another one is that at least one of the older supporting female roles, Widow Twanky, Jack's mother, the ugly sisters and Cinderella, is always played by man. And another is that there's a lot of audience participation. The characters enroll the audience 
in the story and they get them to shout out to the actors when the villain appears on stage or when they're looking for something that somebody else has hidden in a previous scene. And I feel a bit like that here. Because from our vantage point, 2,000 years later, we know more than the characters do. We know what's happening. But these women don't. The text says that they were wondering about what they saw. Another translation says that they were perplexed, confused by the missing body. I don't know about you, but part of me wants to shout out to them, not, he's behind you or look out, but he's risen, he's alive. They're still trying to figure out what's happened. Did someone steal the body? If someone stole it, where did they take it? And then these two men appear, dressed in white. And the women, of course, have the standard biblical response to angels, which is they're terrified. And then the angels ask one of my favorite biblical questions. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here? You're looking in the wrong place. He's not here. He's risen. The women were looking for an explanation for the missing body. What they got was a declaration. The Bible doesn't give us an explanation for the resurrection of Jesus. It gives us statements like, God raised this Jesus from the dead, or Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life. We don't get an explanation. We get a proclamation, an announcement. Christ has been raised from the dead. We share in his resurrection. Death is no longer to be feared. And that's a message that needs to be heard in these days. Thus far, as far as I know, no one in our community has contracted the virus. But a number of us have friends or family who have and who are still battling it. The shadow of death hangs over the whole world in a way that it hasn't, perhaps since the last world war. And in the midst of that, the the gospel is a proclamation of new life from death. But it isn't an explanation of how it happened. I had a discussion with someone once, a pastor no less, who told me that he couldn't believe that Jesus turned water into wine because he couldn't understand how he did it. I'm sorry, but that's just silly. It's a miracle. If you can explain it, then it probably isn't a miracle, right? That's the way it works. So we're not, expo- we're not expected or supposed to explain the resurrection. Actually, it's the resurrection that explains us. The resurrection explains us because we wouldn't be here today, wherever each one of you are. We wouldn't be meeting together online like this if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there'd be no church, there'd be no Christian movement, there'd be no missions, there'd be no Christians The event that we celebrate this morning is the beginning of our faith. Without the resurrection, Jesus would just have been one more first century teacher. The resurrection explains us because everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we sing, everything that we proclaim today and every time we gather as believers, we do in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The one we worship is not merely a great human being or a great teacher, but God and humanity united in one. Fully human, fully God. 
John says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The resurrection explains us because we find the deepest meaning for our lives in the story of the one who died and was raised again. In his life and his teachings, we find our example for what the perfect human life looks like. And it looks very different from what either our home cultures or our host culture tells us is a perfect human life. It's a life of service and sacrifice for others, offered up in worship to God. We worship God in and through Jesus Christ because this is where we find God's vision for how we are created to live and move and have our being. The resurrection explains us because we know that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who offers that same resurrected life to each one of us today. When a woman first entered the tomb, the angels asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a good question. Jesus had said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He had told the woman at the well, the water I give a person will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He told his disciples that he had the ability to lay down his life and take it up again. And in English, the question, why do you seek the living among the dead, sounds almost generic. It sounds like there's a class of people, the living, and another class of people, the dead, and you shouldn't be looking in for one in the place that's generally associated with the other. What the English translation misses is that in the Greek, the dead is plural. It really is a class of people. And the woman that morning had made their way to the tomb, passing all kinds of other tombs in the the necropolis. And those tombs would in fact be full of the dead. But the the living is singular. You could just as easily translate it, the living one. So the angel isn't saying, don't look for living people in the graveyard. It means don't look for the living one there. Don't look amongst the dead for the one who has life in himself. Don't look amongst the dead for the one who gives life. Don't ask the meaning of life from those who don't have life in themselves. And of course, that's where so many assessments of Jesus fall short. They look at him as if he's still dead. You know, some people think that Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived, who lived the loveliest life that had ever been lived on, the, on earth, and then who died. But the angel said, he is risen. He's not a dead hero of the past. He's a living presence today. Our neighbors go further than that, saying, they, they don't just say Jesus is a great man. He's a great prophet. He's a miracle worker and a healer. But the one thing that they won't say is that he's risen because they say he never died, but was taken up to heaven instead. So despite their sincere belief that they honor Jesus more than we do, they miss the point of Easter Sunday because they deny the events, the events of Good Friday. Others think of Jesus as a man whose life must be studied, his words examined, his teaching analyzed. And there's a tendency to think of Christianity and Christ in terms of something to be studied. 
Um, a while ago, I wrote, read a book by Alistair McGrath called Christianity's Dangerous Idea. And it's an overview of the history of Protestantism uh, from the Reformation to the present day. And one of the things he points out is that Protestantism, Protestantism's greatest strength can also, as often as, as often the case, be its greatest weakness. Our greatest strength is that we are rooted in the Bible. And because of that, we can keep going back to the Bible to find new insight into how to live for God in different contexts. Amongst other things, it sets us free from being bound by church tradition and allows us to avoid simply imposing our church history on new communities of faith in places like Afghanistan or Turkey. Although, unfortunately, our record in that area isn't as good as it might be. But our greatest weakness is also that we are rooted in the Bible. Historically, that has led to Jesus kind of being reduced to almost a subject in the curriculum and faith being reduced to simply affirming the right answers to the right theological questions. And as a teacher, I sometimes struggle from time to time. It can be easy to get so focused on teaching the right things about Jesus and forget to actually engage with the living Lord. But Jesus isn't just someone to be studied. He's someone to be met and lived with every day of life. He's not only a figure in a book, even if that book's the Bible. He's a living presence today. Others think of Jesus as a perfect example that we have to copy. And there's truth in that too. But examples aren't really much help by themselves. When I was learning to write, like most kids, I had you know, my, my, my exercise book, and then I had an example that I had to follow, copy. But um, often my, my, my scroll didn't look very much like the example. Actually, these days my scroll doesn't look very much like the example either. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. Um, but then the teacher would come and put their hand over, over, you know, guide my hand with her hand, and my writing got closer to the example. And that's what Jesus does. He's not just an example to follow, he actually helps us, he guides us, strengthens us to follow his example. He's not simply a model for life. The resurrection means that he's a presence with us to help us to live. Jesus was the one who had given um, meaning and direction to the disciples' lives. And we see that expressed later in the chapter when Cleopas explains to Jesus on the road to Emmaus how important he had been to them. He says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. If you want to know what you worship, just look inside your heart and ask what it is that gives meaning and direction to your life. What could you not afford to lose and still be able to keep going? It doesn't have to be anything bad. It could be something good. In fact, it usually is. Family, friends, work, your calling, your ministry. Any one of those things and more can replace our devotion to God at the core of our being. So when we're tempted to stray from God and put something else at the center of our lives, we're actually seeking the living among the dead. We're looking for our meaning in something that doesn't satisfy. 
from we're tempted to worship anything other than the one holy and living God or seeking the living among the dead. But the good news of Easter is that to serve and worship God is to choose life. And the Easter message isn't something frozen in time, some historical event that has no meaning for today. The resurrection, the message of Easter, the resurrection always happens in the present tense. We don't say Christ was risen. We say Christ is risen. We shout Christ is risen. We sing Christ is risen. He is still the risen Lord. He is alive today. And the witness of the church isn't just to an empty tomb, but to a personal experience with the risen Lord. 2,000 years of Christian experience testify to the truth of that relationship. The woman left the tomb, the empty tomb, still unsure of what happened. John's narrative of this morning fills out some details that Luke doesn't have. Somewhere between the tomb and the house where the disciples were meeting, the Lord appeared to Mary Magdalene, she believed. He appeared to the disciples on the Emmaus Road and vanished as soon as they recognized him at the table, and they believed. As Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For the disciples, the empty tomb was a question, and the resurrection appearances of Jesus were the answer. And those answers were what gave birth to faith in their hearts. They knew that Jesus was alive because they had seen him. When Peter preached on Pentecost, people didn't see Jesus. But they saw something in Peter, the coward who had become now a bold preacher. And he explained that change by pointing to the fact that Jesus was risen. When I was working amongst Afghan refugees in Peshawar, Pakistan, in the 1990s, I heard a story about one of the earlier generation of Christian workers in Afghanistan. Like many of the houses in Afghanistan, the house where he lived had an annex. And he would go out to the annex to pray. Um, I think he might have gone out to the annex also for the sake of his family, because he was Pentecostal and he actually really got quite loud when he prayed. So he'd be out there um, in the annex, praying away, and his chokidar would listen. Now, chokidar is a bit like a capuja. Uh, he'd answer the gate, he'd go, do grocery shopping, look after the yard, that kind of stuff. So he's out there praying, and the chokidar would uh, listen in. After a while, the chokidar asked the worker to teach him about Jesus. Actually, what he, what he actually said was, I want to know God the way that you do. He had seen something in this guy, something that was different. He had seen someone with a living relationship with a living person. And people still come to faith by seeing the risen Christ. Sometimes they literally see the Lord in dreams and visions. 
But they also see the risen Christ in his followers. Just like the crowds saw him in Peter at Pentecost. Just like that, Chalkidar saw him in the life of his employer. The Bible tells us that it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians, little Christs, because people saw something of the Lord in them. As the song says, Jesus Christ is risen today. He is a living presence today, not only in heaven, but in every human heart that accepts him as Lord and Savior, in every human life that's turned over to Jesus in faith. That's what it means to say, he is risen. Not just, he is risen, and so I live in him, but also, he is risen, and he lives in me. He is risen, and he lives in us. So Easter isn't just a day to remember and celebrate what Christ has done for us, although it is that. It's also a day to remember that we are called to live our lives in such a way that they they display the presence of Christ so that others may see him and believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are risen today. You are risen and alive and expressing yourselves, yourself in our lives in so many different ways. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of walking with you. And may you change our lives and shine through our faces that others may see you and come to know you. In your name we pray. Amen.